Well, I do want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And our passage this Sunday is clearly connected to the one that we had the opportunity to study last week. And so allow me to refresh the screen for you. Last week, our study involved a nameless man who was very wealthy, and as we learned, was most likely a ruler or official in the local synagogue. Thus, not only did he have riches on his side, but he also had religion. Matthew's account lets us know that he was young. As you might imagine, life probably seemed pretty good from his perspective, but there was a pressing question that he needed an answer to. There was this itch that he couldn't scratch. And so he pursued the Lord and he asked him the question, what must I do to inherit or obtain eternal life? And this opened up an opportunity for the Lord Jesus Christ to interact with him. And rather than give him a direct answer, we learned last week that Jesus interacted with him, and in the process, he exposed the man's heart. First, Jesus exposed that the rich young ruler had a skewed anthropology or view of man. Like many in our world today, he didn't understand what God's word says about our depravity, our sinfulness, our, our wickedness and moral corruption within the heart of every single person. And thus, Jesus affirmed that only God is good. Next, Jesus used the law to help this man see that he was a lawbreaker, yet this was to no avail. The man didn't confess that he was a lawbreaker. Rather, he naively elevated and proudly asserted that he was a law keeper. So finally, Jesus asked him to do just one final thing. He asked him to go sell all his possessions and to give to the poor and to follow him. And this, in the end, exposed what this man's heart was committed to, what his allegiance was to. It exposed that he served himself and he served his wealth. Now I'm a poet and I don't even know it. But it, it's true. He was self-absorbed. He lived a life that was egocentric, a life that centered around himself and his possessions. And the story ends tragically with the rich young ruler turning his back on Jesus and walking away grieving. And so now, here we are, after the rich young ruler leaves, our Lord's eyes are going to turn toward his disciples, and they've just heard what Jesus has shared with the rich young ruler. And as we're going to see in a moment, it absolutely shocked them. And so now Jesus is going to reel why it's important for them to understand, and in the process, why it's important for you and I as well. He shares some very sobering truths, and listen to what he says in Mark 10, verses 23 through 31. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. 
It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, With people, it is impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I want to pray and ask God to bless our time in studying his word. Father, we do just ask for that. We bow our heads as a church family, asking that you would bless us as we study your word this morning. Have your way with us. We pray that you would challenge us with the hard truths that Jesus shared with the 12 disciples many years ago that still apply to us. Often when we hear hard truths, they can ricochet off our hearts if our hearts are hardened or aren't prepared to receive what you have for us. And so we pray that you would allow us to be humble and teachable that you would use your word to penetrate our hearts deeply and to change us for your glory. I pray, Father, that you would use your word in great measure as we talk about the perils of wealth, that you would help us to evaluate our hearts and our relationship with you as well as our relationship to money. Challenge us, convict us, and change us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I realize that money is a very sensitive subject and that it has been a a cause of a a lot of problems in many marriages, families, and even in working relationships. It was J.C. Ryle who said, quote, two-thirds of all the strifes, quarrels, and lawsuits in the world arise from one single cause, money, end quote. Money by itself is a morally neutral object, but the love and desire for money is not. It is connected directly to the heart, and it can create many evil and sinful desires. You can look at the example of Judas Iscariot, who walked with the Lord Jesus Christ for over three years, and eventually he was influenced persuaded, and led to betray Christ all for the sake of money. It should come as no surprise then that the Lord has some strong words to share that we all need to take to heart. As your outline indicates, we're going to look at four takeaways after our Lord's interaction with the rich young ruler so that you see why wealth and materialism poses a great threat to your soul. That's the... the Title of the message, Wealth 
the, the shocking threat to your, shul, to your soul. First, you and I need to recognize the danger of wealth. Second, we need to make sure that we don't confuse retribution and redemption. Don't worry, I'm going to explain and define those terms when we get there. Thirdly, we need to trust God completely to save you and I through faith. And lastly, we need to follow the Lord faithfully and our reward will be great. These are four challenging takeaways and let's start with the first one. Recognize the danger of wealth. Jesus starts out with two admonitions. One comes in verse 23, the other in verse 24, followed by an illustration in verse 25. And the first admonition speaks straight to the rich. Look again at verse 23, where Jesus says, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Then the second admonition in the next verse, when he turns his attention to his disciples and says, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And here Jesus affectionately refers to his disciples as spiritual children. Why? Because they were still young. They were still maturing. In the Greek, the first admonition is literally saying, with what difficulty those who hold on to wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the verb to hold is actually in the present tense. So there's this idea of continuous action. And it could actually be rendered with what difficulty those who make it their habit to hold on to wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And it's as if this admonition comes in question form, or it gives that appearance, I think, in our English because they include how, right? And, and actually both admonitions, right? The same word is used again in the second admonition And again, it it helps us to view these more like questions. The key picture to keep in mind is someone clinging to their wealth. That's what you got to think about. And I'm not just talking about physically or externally, but emotionally or internally with the heart. In my study, I came across one translation that said, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. Some important manuscripts leave out the phrase for them that trust in riches. And in the end, whether it's kept out or um, included, we're led to the same conclusion. Clinging to or trusting in riches, either way it's a problem. So much so that Jesus uses an illustration in verse 25 that serves as an answer to these admonition-like questions. How hard is it for the wealthy to get into heaven? How hard in general is it to obtain eternal life? Look at verse 25. Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Christ's reference to a camel, the largest beast of burden familiar in Palestine, going through the eye of a needle would be readily recognized as impossible. Everyone knows what a camel is. And just in case you were curious, whether needles existed during this time. I provided a picture. I wanted to put it up there so that you could see. Typically, needles were made out of sheep bone, okay? And in Dr. Luke's account, he actually uses a different word that uh, represents a medical needle. So not only were there sewing needles, but they also had medical needles. 
the emphasis it shouldn't be on what kind of needle. The emphasis needs to be on that little eye right up at the top of the needle. That's what the, the reference is. It's pretty small, isn't it? And so for Jesus to, to share that it will be easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle, we need to make sure that we understand that. Some rabbis and scholars have tried to dismiss the impossible nature of verse 25 by substituting the Greek word meaning rope for the word camel because there's only one letter difference. And so they were thinking that, and this was probably rooted in their pride because they, they wanted it to be possible, right? They, they were thinking that, well, it was probably a scribal error, and so it's rope instead of camel, okay? That, that, that's what they claim. Others propose the idea that the reference is to a small gate in Jerusalem called Eye of the Needle, through which a camel could fit through, but with great difficulty. And there's no early evidence that a gate like this even existed. And the truth is that putting a rope through an eye of a needle would be as nearly as impossible as a camel. The best and earliest evidence points to the Babylonian Talmud, which contains quotations regarding elephants passing through the eye of a needle, again, as an illustration of impossibility. Jesus' reference to a camel being thrust through a needle hole was readily understood as a humorous illustration of the impossible. And this same proverb is actually used amongst Arabs today. Jesus uses the illustration to say that it is impossible for a man or a woman who trusts in riches to get into heaven. So, question for you, what is the danger? Why money and wealth? Why not something else? Think about that. I meditated on it, so I'll share a little bit of what I came up with. And again, it's, it, it's an example, right, that, uh, of money. But as I, I thought about the, the lies of this world and the deception, the lies of the eyes, the lies of the flesh, you, it's lust, but they're negative, so they're, they're lies. Uh, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the lust of pride, they're lies. They're lies. And I want you to think about it for a moment, how much money and the love of money is impacted by those lies. Remarkable to think about. I actually drew my attention actually to Ephesians 5.18, a familiar text where um, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus where he says, do not get drunk with wine, right? And he, used, uh, he says, uses the example of drunkenness, right? And he said, which is dissipation, which is a waste of time. He could use the number of things that are a waste of time, but he used something that was so um, uh, intoxicating and, and overtakes you and has such a tr tremendous impact on all life to make his point, to contrast that with fullness of the Spirit. And so here, the same thing. He picks money for purpose, money for a reason. So what's the danger? After all, the Old Testament and the New Testament reveal that wealth is a blessing from God. Abraham is a typical example of a, a wealthy, God-fearing man as seen in Genesis 12, 3, where it says that he was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold, as was Job. 
The psalmists celebrate material possessions like in Psalm 112, which says, Wealth and riches are in the house of the man that fears the Lord. And then we have the New Testament that says that God richly furnishes us with everything to enjoy in 1 Timothy 6.17. Even in that, and we're going to look at it here in a little bit, it provides some instructions to the rich, right? So it's, there's, there's a perspective that we need to understand. The danger isn't wealth. It's the heart that is stewarding or pursuing wealth that can be in jeopardy. With wealth comes a biblical responsibility to help those in need. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 helps us tremendously. I want to invite you to turn there because we're going to camp there for just a little bit. 1 Timothy 6, starting at verse 17, it says this. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Stop there for a moment. Just think about that reality. Think about the uncertainty of riches in, in this world, right? How there, there are people, we've all heard about the recessions and the stock market crashes and the real estate bust and how in a moment somebody can be on top of the world as it relates to finances and it can be gone. God's word is perfectly clear. The uncertainty of riches. Don't fix your hope on that, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. A truly converted heart doesn't make it their habit to hoard wealth, but makes it their habit to help others with their wealth. Their love for money their love for God always exceeds, or their love for God, their love for people always exceeds their love for money. And we see incredible examples of this type of sharing and, and giving in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 and also in Acts chapter 4. Now, though the blessings and instruction on wealth are very clear, God's word does also include dangers that we need to take to heart. So while we're still in 1 Timothy 6, I want you to look up to verses 8 through 10, where the Apostle Paul is writing Timothy, and the context is concerning greed. Verse 8. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Stop there for a moment. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. What a powerful truth to keep in perspective right there. 
And my heart, I'll just confess, was so challenged as I just meditated on that verse in my study this week, as I just looked at it and allowed it to saturate my mind because I regularly look beyond these two necessities for contentment. I don't know about you, but materialism always causes my heart to look at the have-nots instead of what God has blessed me with, what I already have. And we live in the United States. It's no secret that we're one of the wealthiest countries. We live in California in Orange County, which is one of the wealthiest counties in the wealthiest countries. And if you don't recognize the fact that if you have a place to live and that you don't worry about where your next meal is going to come from and you live where we live in the country in which we live, man, we're missing it. God desires that we would be content. And I'm stepping on my own toes here. But our hearts are constantly being tempted, are they not? To look at the next best thing. Just think about it. Just even as it relates to your housing and, and, and the steps that, that take place. If you're living in an apartment, well then oftentimes you look to get a condo. And if you're sharing walls in the place in which you live, I mean, can you imagine that for a moment? Just to even share walls with somebody else on the other side of the wall? I mean, then, then you have to look for a house. And then there are no basements in California, so you've got to look with a house that has a, a, a garage. Not a detached garage, but you need it attached, right, so you can pull in, unload your groceries, right? Got to have a place to park the car. Oh, wait a minute. If we park the car in the garage, then we no longer have storage for all of our stuff. We need a two-car garage. Wait, we're a two-car family. Now what are we going to do? One car is in, our stuff's in there. The, the other car can't park in the garage. I mean, think about it. Poor car, it's out in the cold. Probably misses the other car. We need a three-car garage. Right? So both cars can be in the garage and we can collect and amass all of our stuff. You see the progression? In our hearts, we get saturated with that culture. Mine does, right? And we don't think about it. And, and honestly, we, we're, we're constantly looking up so much to the stuff that other people have and the things that are tempting our heart and, 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 and stuff that's desirable, that we don't look down. We, don't, we certainly don't look at the rest of the world as it relates to wealth and consider the reality. Or at least I don't. don't want to assume that your heart is in the same place. And again, this isn't to negate that there aren't practical reasons and growing families and real reasons why you're going to need more space and more bedrooms. 
But I do have to share this with you because it was something that we faced. We lived in North Carolina with two children, and then when we've come to California in the last three years, we've since had two more. And we're blessed. We're so blessed. We live in a four-bedroom place. But there was a conversation with Victoria when it became apparent that we have one of the bedrooms, and then there's three bedrooms, and then that leaves how many? With four kids. Somebody's going to have to share a bedroom. There's not going to be enough for each person to have their own bedroom. I'm one of eight kids. With my mom and dad, that made ten of us. We lived in a four-bedroom farmhouse all growing up. My twin brother and I stayed in the same room with our older brother Paul and with bunk beds. And my twin brother and I shared the bottom bunk. And my older brother Paul slept in the top bunk so we wouldn't fall out. That left five sisters to share two bedrooms. Three in one and two in the other. Yeah, everybody was always waiting to who was going to go off to college next. So the bedroom battles could continue. But I, I just think about it, and I, I just want to confess, my heart is, is so vulnerable, and just considering, just even honestly, the blessing that it was to live in such tight quarters, just even with siblings, and to, and to share your lives. It's been my experience that those in, in larger places, larger homes, especially unbelieving homes, that you can disappear Take your laptop, take your phone, take your book, take your whatever, and go disappear to a part of the large house. Listen to me. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Amen? Amen? Now, verse 9. But those who want to get rich... Notice this isn't even addressing those who already have wealth. It's talking to those who want to get rich. Fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This passage really deserves its own sermon. It really does. But for the sake of making our first point, recognize the danger of wealth, I think it does a very good job. Recognize even the danger of longing for it. J.C. Ryle said, Nothing, I am sure, has such a tendency to quench the fire of faith as the possession of money. Riches which all desire to obtain. Riches for which men labor and toil and become gray before their time. Riches are a most perilous possession. They often inflict great injury on the soul. They lead men into many temptations. They engross men's thoughts and affections. They bind heavy burdens on the heart. And they make the way to heaven even more difficult than it naturally is. End quote. The love and desire of money and materialism is a temptation and a snare that can cause you and I to wander away from the faith. Do you believe that? 
I, I, the, the, the number of pastors that have disqualified themselves because of finances is, 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 I assure you, is plenty. So this isn't just, oh, it's something that everybody's vulnerable. Church leaders, church members, right? It poses a great threat to your soul. And right now you might be saying, well, is that even possible? I mean, I am saved. I am sealed for the day of redemption. Need I even worry about this? Listen, we're all called as believers to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12. And we're called to examine the genuineness of our faith in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Why? Why? We need not look any further than back at Mark chapter 4 in the parable of the soils. A familiar text for most of us explaining that three out of the four soils are compromised when it comes to, excuse me, the gospel bearing fruit in someone's life. What does Jesus explain about the third soil? Let me share it with you. These are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, wealth, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. This is by far the most alarming of the compromised soils. This means that it is possible for someone to respond to the gospel. This means that it is possible that somebody could get baptized and make a public profession of faith. This means that it's possible that somebody could be a member and go through the membership of a church. It means that they could be plugged in at some point serving. It looks like they're growing. And then something unexpected happens. The weeds of this world sprout up in their life and they begin to choke out their spiritual growth. The rat race of materialism and keeping up with the Joneses, it it pulls their heart away from God and away from the church, away from discipleship away from their role at home, away from serving their family, and on and on it goes. And all of a sudden, he or she is too busy to read God's word, too busy to spend time with God, prayer, evangelism, discipleship relationships. They're an afterthought. And just like an MMA fighter, They're choked out. Choked out by the world. They tap out. They tap out of their faith. Listen to me. You must fight for your faith. I must fight for my faith. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote his farewell letter to Timothy, right? He, he, he shared it. He, he shares 
the, the words that he had fought the good fight, that he had finished the course, that he had kept the faith. And yes, it was the Spirit of God, and there's a preservation, and there's an aspect, but there is an element that we fight for our faith. We fight against the things of this world. Are you fighting for your faith? Are you floundering? We are called to look at our heart. This isn't for the person next to you. I am speaking directly to you. Are you fighting for your faith? Are you fighting for your time with God? Are you fighting for your focus on discipleship? Are you fighting for your service, for your family? Or is this world starting to choke you out so that your life is unfruitful? A love of money and materialism threatens your faith and your fruitfulness. A love of money also threatens your dependency upon God. And this is the related danger of trusting in riches that wisdom calls us to take heed to. And I want to invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 30. Again, I believe these should be listed in your outline, all these scripture references. If you miss one, they should be in the sub points there. A love of money also threatens your dependency upon God. Some point number two, Proverbs 30, 7 through 9. And these are Proverbs of Agur who, who said this. And I was thinking about this because a lot of the Proverbs that we read were written by Solomon. I don't believe that Solomon could have written these Proverbs considering his life. I believe that God obviously in his providence, had Agur write them. And he says this, two things I asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. One, keep deception and lies far from me. Two, give me neither poverty nor riches. Why does he request this? Look at what he says next. Feed me with the food that is my portion that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of God. Food is the object lesson here. And Agar is saying, just give me enough that is my portion. Just give me what I need. Why? That I not be full. He's talking here about being satisfied to the extent that it would cause him to lose sight of God's providence and God's giving hand, right? And to be honest, this is why so many wealthy people deny the Lord and basically say, who's the Lord? And, and why do I need the Lord? Don't you see this little kingdom that I built? Don't you see I got everything that I need? Why are you telling me that I need to depend on the Lord? I can buy anyone, anything I want, any service that I need. Why do I, why do I need the Lord? Money threatens our dependency upon God. And this is why we need to heed the admonition of Psalm 52, 7, which says, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, 
and was strong in his evil desire. His refuge wasn't in God, but he trusted in the abundance of his riches. One pastor shared, we do trust in our riches. Our words prove it. America's national retirement plan is called social security. We call our investments securities and trust as if we can trust them for a secure future, end quote. And again, our hearts need to go back to the proverbial wisdom of Proverbs 30, 7 and 9, and the two things that Agur asked for. Keep me away from the deception. Keep me away from the lies of this world, the lies of the flesh, the lies of the eyes, the lies of pride. And Lord, just give me only what I need so that I will continue to trust and depend upon you. Heavy truths. And we're not done yet. There's one more threat in your outline. And by the way, this isn't an exhaustive list. These were the ones that I was led to look at, the big three, I will say, in my study this week. I was beat up. I was beat up in my study this week. A love of money threatens your faith. A love of money threatens your dependency. A love of money threatens your allegiance and service. In Matthew 6, 24, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shared a very powerful truth that affirms and amplifies the danger of wealth. He says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Twice Jesus uses the verb to serve. When he says you cannot serve two masters at the beginning of the verse, and then he says you cannot serve God and money at the end. And in the Greek word, the Greek word, that verb is duleo, okay, which is a the, the cognate or form of the word doulos, which is the word for slave. You cannot be enslaved or serve two different masters. Your service and your allegiance will be divided. And I, I'm sure somebody in our church, our size, has had the experience working for two different bosses and two different departments, and and they're not on the same page, and one's asking you to do something that is totally contradicting the other person, and you're, you're, you're caught in the, the crossfire. It's awful. You can relate to this well. It cannot work. It doesn't work. And the same is true when it comes to investing into the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of wealth. God's kingdom will call you to invest your time with him, serving your family, serving discipleship relationships, serving the church, advancing his kingdom. A kingdom of wealth will encourage you to invest more time in your workplace, to neglect God, to neglect your own heart, to neglect your family, to neglect the church discipleship, 
also that this, this temporal kingdom can be built. Now I want to make sure I clarify something here. This isn't to say that we cannot show a, a commitment to our boss and to our, our workplace because we can honor God uh, with both. But what I'm speaking to is that our allegiance is to the Lord first, right? It's always to the Lord first and never to the love of money. And so how do you know if you are showing an allegiance to a love of money? Are there any indications? Came across a list put together by Pastor Alistair Begg, and I wanted to share them with you. And there wasn't room in the outline, so we're actually going to put these up on the PowerPoint. He says this, I am guilty of loving money when thoughts of money consume my day. Now we can see just even the problem with that right away. Right? Money on the mind. Right? As we are supposed to be dwelling on that which is true and honorable, pure. Right? As we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. As we think spiritually through a spiritual lens about what God would have us focus on. Right? If your mind is constantly being consumed with money, that's a problem. Number two, others' financial successes make me jealous. Okay? Rather than rejoicing with those who rejoice, we find ourselves envious and even to the point of jealousy that they were blessed with a financial success that we did not get could be an indication that you struggle with a love for money. Number three, I define success in terms of what I have rather than who I am in Christ. And I think this drives right to the heart of the idolatrous issue, right? As we would, you know, our identity is in him. We think about just even the temporal nature of this life and the riches that, and there are plenty of riches as a result of Christ that we get to experience, and we're going to talk about those um, in this passage under our final point. But, yeah, we um, can, can be so consumed with earthly riches that we are blind to the spiritual riches that God has for us, even, even here on earth. Number four, my family is neglected in my pursuit of money. Don't need to say anything more there. God's will for you to be called to fulfill the role within your family, not to neglect it because of a pursuit of money. Number five, I close my eyes to the genuine needs of others. Again, many of these have already been answered from 1 Timothy 6 uh, standpoint and the scriptures that we covered under this first takeaway that we have to steward that with with an abundance, with an overflow, with a blessing comes stewardship. Right? I was talking to a brother recently, you know, and he was just sharing his heart with me, just even about, you know, God's blessed him and, and provided with him. He was talking about just even how he wrestles. It was just encouraging to me personally how, you know, he wrestles with the fact about, um, you know, just the, the direction of this that the world's going, concerns about uh, the, the financial stability of our country and how that would even uh, affect his stewardship, right? right? And I was sharing with him, 
and I didn't have to look at, at, at a scripture. You know, he's just like, as we, were, as we were talking, as it relates to money, not getting a hold of, of your heart, that you are sharing it, that you're, you're mi- using it to minister to the needs of others. Number six, I am living in the para- paralyzing fear of losing it. Money, that is, right? Okay, not losing it like losing control. Um, losing money, okay? Living in paralyzing fear of losing money. Number seven, I am prepared to borrow myself into bondage, right? In order to get, to, to get what I want, I'm willing to work um, overtime, weekends, you know, all the things that um, we, get, we can be enslaved to the almighty dollar. Number eight, God gets my leftovers rather than my first fruits. And again, priorities, priorities. And God, we would worship God first, but we would give God from our best, not our leftovers as it relates to our time, our talents, or even our finances. We're going to leave these up for a couple minutes. If you want to jot them down, if you would like a list, you can just email me. I'll, I'll gladly send you this electronically. And it's easy to see that there are biblical responses to each one of these and that many of the passages we covered under this first takeaway apply directly as well. Well, that covers our introduction and our first takeaway. Okay, Three more to go. I'm just kidding. Actually, you'll notice in the notes under the title, that this is part one of, of the message. And so the remaining takeaways will be much shorter. And we'll have an opportunity to uh, cover those in, in, in the second message next Sunday. We'll cover the three remaining points when we talk about retribution, redemption, and rewards for faithfully following Christ. Well, to close our time, I thought it would be appropriate to share this final quote again from J.C. Ryle. And you might be thinking at this point, is that the only person that Pastor John reads about is J.C. Ryle? I do love me some J.C. Ryle, I'll tell you that, but especially his expositional thoughts. But there, there, there are many others, but I've just um, grown in my appreciation for, for his clarity and just how concise he is. And this is what he has to say. Let us all be on guard <clears throat> against the love of money. The world is full of it in our days. We are all liable to the infection from the least to the greatest. We may love money without having it, just as we may have money without loving it. It is an evil that works very deceitfully. It carries us captives before we are aware of our chains. Once let into mastery, it will harden, paralyze, scorch, freeze, blight, and wither our souls. End quote. Again, sobering words for us to consider. I realize that there's, this is a, a, a sobering, sobering message, but as it relates to, to where we live, where our, our, where our hearts, the temptations that surround us, I felt that it was very important that we spend this amount of time focused on the danger of wealth. Please pray with me. <clears throat> Father, we do want to bow our heads and just, um, again, um, praise you for hard truths that 
you've allowed us to look at in your word today. I know there was a lot of conviction in my own study this week. And I imagine just even for those that could hear the sound of my voice today, uh, just, just sharing what your word has to say, that there's a, a weightiness of, of conviction, there's a weightiness of, of even fear. And we want to confess that um, we need your grace. We thank you that you allow the, the power of and the temptation of sin to, to that there's a, a way of escape for us, for those that are in Christ, that you can steer us away from temptations that could cause us to serve the master of money instead of you as our master. That would cause us to build a kingdom in this world rather than the, the, the kingdom of God, which will not only exist in, in a temporal aspect, but in an eternal one. That you would help us just to reflect upon our lives and our hearts and where we're at before you. And that we would celebrate with joy the victories that you have given us. And I pray for those that right now are in, in the middle of the battle and all of our hearts are as it relates to being tempted. And you would continue just to remind us of these sobering truths that as it relates to what we have in this life, that when we have Christ, we have everything. We have everything that we could possibly value. And that if we have food and covering, that with these we shall be content. And I know the temptation of my own heart is to say, yeah, but, yeah, I have food and covering, but what, but what about this? Father, please help us to, to stay focused. And this life is a vapor. And so we do want to just make the investments in the things that are going to matter the most. We cling to you to do that. We ask for your help. We ask for your guidance. We pray that you will bless us next Sunday as we look at the remaining three takeaways and encourage us with the rewards that can be ours as well. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.